My name is Dawn. Gotcha. D-A-W-N. Okay. We're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Dawn. She's uh, researched a story I'm familiar with. I've talked to Christopher Barry D., a pretty well-known author on true crime. And we covered the stories of what's known as uh, the Sunset Strip Killers here in Los Angeles. Pretty graphic, heinous crimes. Uh, so I definitely would not have any sensitive listeners of young children in the background listening to this story because it is not pretty. It's uh, very heinous crimes took place. But even Christopher Barry D. had, and he's met Douglas Clark, who we're probably going to end up talking about. And even he said, Christopher Barry D. said that there was some concerns about really um, this case. But we're going to go into detail, talk about it, talk about the research that Don has done. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see the Dead Man Talking podcast. And uh, it should be interesting. So, Don, welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. Hi, thank you. For people who may not have heard of your podcast or your name, can you go into your background and what led you into researching this uh, particular, I mean, he's a convicted serial killer, Douglas Clark, and what's known yes. as the Sunset Strip Killers? So my husband, David, and I were always working on projects together. And um, I've the issue of social justice is always something that's been particularly interesting to me and my husband's from Los Angeles and he's very into LA history. So we were working on something else um, about LA history, about the, the late seventies, eighties, and just kind of thinking about just the zeitgeist of the time and what was happening. So it started out not about Doug Clark. It started out about Los Angeles. And um, we were thinking about all the serial killers that were there. So it initially was my husband sent some letters to Kenneth Bianchi and one to Doug Clark. I'm not sure who else he sent a letter to, but Doug wrote us back. So we started corresponding with Doug, just talking about kind of what was happening in Los Angeles during that time and sort of the connections that he might have with, with other folks that you've probably heard of. You know, we, there's the Process Church and the, all these different things. So we were kind of interested in that. But after getting to know Doug and hearing his story, it was like, the, there is something that's just not, you know, making sense about this case. So our, our interest kind of just really honed in on him and we, we the other projects sort of fell away for a little while because what he was sharing with us is you know who, whoever has seen interviews with Doug Clark on YouTube or on any of the crime shows they can see that he's he's got an edge he's got a sharp edge race no, no offense to Doug he doesn't because he doesn't come across like this to us but it and the interviews it doesn't come across as incredibly likable right and then you you have the the story about this this woman carol bundy that he supposedly had the, the murders with is that he sort of manipulated her to brutalize these young women um so it, it kind of comes together with this story like i just don't like this guy whatever you tell me about him i'm going to believe it because he seems scummy but that's just not it there's so many more things his his court was his his case was really not handled well there was a lot of things that didn't get to see the light of day because he was his own attorney for a while. It was just, I'll let you ask questions because I could ramble on about that. But Well, let's just go into the background for people who may not have heard of this series of killings. This was kind of like a accused thrill killer, he and his wife. Can you talk about what he was accused of and what led to his arrest and conviction? Yes. So the story is, is that Doug Clark 
was this real creep that he he found this woman by the name of Carol Bundy. And and when you hear, you know, Leroy Roscoe and Louise Farr and different folks on like crime television, they'll they'll paint Carol Bundy out as this this portly, homely woman with these Coke bottle glasses on and that she was just this, you know, just just a mark for Doug and that Doug walked up to her kind of saw her as somebody that he could use. So then he started to use this like S&M sort of sexual magic on her to manipulate her into helping him to kill women. All of them, you know, unfortunately, all but one were, were sex workers. Um, he also engaged in um, sexual acts with an underage person. Uh, there was that. So it, it kind of was just, uh, there was a beheading, you know, that Carol eventually killed one of her lovers in a van. So it's just really brutal. There's necrophilia involved. There's, you know, just brutal murders. Decapitation. Uh -huh. Decapitation. Two, two, two of the people were, were decapitated. One by the name of Exie Wilson was decapitated. And then Carol Bundy killed, this is the one that Carol Bundy was uh, found guilty for, killing her lover, Jack Murray. You know, she beheaded him too. So there was two decapitations. One of the things was that they, and I'm, I'm going to be kind of, kind of, um, well, it's the, it's the facts of the case, but I'll be as delicate as I can, you know, using the head of one of the victims as a sex object in the shower, just all kinds of really awful things. And, and they described Doug as this guy that's just like basically playing soccer with a, with a person's head. Like he just doesn't care. Like that's how they portray him as this cold hearted necrophiliac monster. And he's in, yeah. he got convicted. He, he was convicted. He, you know, uh, represent, chose to represent himself, mm -hmm. which uh, is never a good decision. And um, he is in San Quentin, right? On death, he's, death row. Yes, he's in San Quentin on death row. He had uh, Keith Maxwell, who was represented Leslie Van Houten from the Manson case. He was one of Doug's attorneys at some point, but it was that was just a train wreck. But yeah, so Doug was found guilty. Um, he's in San Quentin, has been there since he's been incarcerated since 1980, August of 1980. Um, we talked to Doug. My husband talks to Doug probably three or four times a week over the maybe, you know, pushing two years now. We talk to him pretty regularly, even from death row, we're able to talk to him. So we actually have him on the podcast with us. There's a lot of Doug actually talking. So you'll hear and you'll hear Doug sharing all the information. So if he was found he was arrested by the police, went through, mm -hmm. was properly, got his due process, found guilty. What's he saying now that he's on death row? Well, did he get his due process? I, I don't, I'm not trained as a lawyer. So when, you know, to, to use a term like that, I don't know if I can really say he got his due process. I, I, I know that there was some things that, that were taken up to the Supreme Court as current attorney back in uh, early 2000s took it to the Supreme Court of California and uh, Stanley Mock, I think, and another uh, justice said that he, that there were problems with the case and they both dissented, the only two of the justices. So there was even other judges that thought that there were some problems with the case. So when it comes to his due process, again, not being completely, you know, how to answer to that, that phrase, but he had witnesses that he wanted that could speak to his whereabouts when some of the, the crimes occurred, like a sibling's wedding he was at. They would not allow anybody from the wedding 
even the, the sibling to come to court to tell, to, to say that he had written a check on the night, one of the nights of the murders, but they wouldn't even let, you know, that kind of thing come into, to uh, the testimony, which I don't really understand. I've read some of the court documents and it will say things like it was not pertinent to the case. It wasn't relevant. There was not enough of a doubt. So it, it just seems, why wouldn't it be? Why? Well, one of the was, reasons for yes. his convictions was that they gave Bundy his cohort or co-offender uh, uh, mm -hmm. plea deal, right? So she got mm -hmm. off of death row for testifying against Clark. And so yes. some of the issues are that her statements didn't jive, like you're saying, they didn't kind of come up with some of the facts, which doesn't right. make take him off of like, a, it doesn't fully exonerate him. However, there is some problems with her statements. This is what people found. I think that's what right. Barry D said. Yeah. And Christopher Barry D, I'm <clears> glad <throat> that you you know were able to talk to him because he he definitely he's written books. See, there's a chapter in one of his books about this case. I think that he you know said that Doug is kind of a he used some cool um, I think British British slang for it, but he you know that he's kind of a creep, but he doesn't really know if he's necessarily guilty of murder. It's something I've written by read. Read that was a quote by Christopher Barry D. So and I think the it, book is called "Talking with Serial Killers," and you can go back yes. and listen to that on my podcast. I apologize for not referencing okay. that. Yeah. Okay. But he's talked. To, he's not his first. He's talked to Bianchi, all these other characters. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's done a lot of work. He's a, obviously a big name. So for him to say it is. There was also a really great book called um, uh, it, "Critical Visions." Uh, David Slater and um, David McGowan, I think, and they they did a lot of the same kind of work that they they showed some really great things. There, for instance, there is a piece of a chunk of scalp with hair on it in Jack Murray, the person that was killed by Carol Bundy. In this man's van, there was a piece of scalp with hair, and it wasn't just like a fist fight kind of chunk of hair. This you, you can see the picture. I have. Well, I don't want to get up and, and grab it right now, but you know, it's it's a pretty substantial piece. It was never tested. Why wasn't that not tested? The blood that was in different places, it's all type, I think type A, Doug has type O blood. I mean, it, there's not a lot of, and I know that this was before DNA and everything, but there's just not a lot of evidence that specifically is attached to Doug. A lot of it is Carol's statements. I mean, Carol, she, I'll, I'll just kind of run this down because Carol purchased two guns that were used, the Ravens. She bought two of those three days before Jack Murray her lover's birthday. Okay. Jack Murray, who, and I'll just put this out there. It seems to, to make more sense that Carol and Jack were the killers. And I'm, I know I'm taking liberties, but I'm just going to do that for the sake of my storytelling right here um, to put things together. For instance, Jack Murray, um, he has a history of violence against women. There was women that he had had, had encounters with at the little Nashville. That was a bar that they would always go to that said that Jack almost bit off their nipples. He was way into like really, kind of uh, very brutal sex acts. Um, his wife, he assaulted her, broke her arm, would regularly give her black eyes, things like that. He held a gun on a kid once. He held a gun on one of Carol's children before. So this is this is Jack Murray. And the, you know, in his van, there's the scalp. There's all these, you know, sex toys and stuff, that just a lot of blood, all kinds of evidence there that they didn't really bother to examine very thoroughly, which I think could, I mean, it kind of raises doubts that that's in Jack's van when he was supposed to not even know anything that was going on. Okay. But do you, do you think that Murray and Bundy were the ones who did it? Do you think that there's enough evidence to exonerate Douglas Clark fully from any type of uh, criminal acts? 
I think that if they could could test the some of the pieces of evidence that they have against Doug's uh, against Doug's DNA, I think that that would be something. You know, this is a story that somebody has to look into. I guess the first thing would be to look at the the things that didn't happen that could have happened with with evidence in the case. You know, in in the trial, that would be one thing. I, the the pieces of information that would exonerate Doug, I think, are the uh, the dates that he was not in town to participate in the killings. You know, the fact that uh, when you listen, we actually put up a, a tape a recording between Mark McNamara, a reporter that was working for Vanity Fair and Carol, he did just tons and tons of interviews. And we put one of them up on our, um, we have this uh, for our podcast, but also I have a Facebook page where I'm just putting up all the documents that I can find so that people could look at them and make their own decision because not being, you know, I'm trained as a therapist. I'm not trained as a, a as a criminologist or anything. So this is all information that is there's raising doubt in, in my mind, my husband, you know, he's a musician. So both of us as, as people that were not trained for, forensically. So take a look at it, but there's enough to, to raise a lot of doubt. Like if Doug was not here on the dates of the, of the murders, if, if Carol and Jack already had this really kind of dark relationship that they're trying to say that Doug and Carol had, why isn't anybody looking at, at Jack? Why was the, the autopsy literally, the beheadings that were done with Jack Murray and Exy Wilson, it was done by the same uh, the same bone saw. Carol's the one that beheaded Jack. We know that. You know, there's just a lot of there was a, a call, a seven minute call the night that Exy Wilson was was killed. Um, Carol called Doug at another uh, apartment. The phone was off the hook. The call was seven minutes long. Doug's not at the apartment. You know, the the night that, and I know I'm rambling. I apologize, but I'm just no, but it it's there. important. Yeah, the, the night that uh, Carol killed Jack Murray, Carol came to the apartment uh, where Doug was and she was going to bring the head. But she did not realize that a woman that Doug was entertaining had a seizure in the apartment that night. And this is on this is a fact. I mean, the, the EMTs and everything were there. Um, Carol comes in and she was she worked as a nurse. So she comes in and she's like, let me help you. And the, the EMTs are like, no, we've got this. After they all leave, Carol takes Doug out to the, the car opens up the back seat. She's like, I killed Jack. And he's like, okay, what? You killed Jack? What are you talking about? He's just going through this ex experience with this friend having a seizure. She opens up the um, this bag. Doug looks in and sees what he thinks. It's a human, a part of a human body. And he vomits next to the car, gets into the car with her, freaked out, and they go dispose of the head together because he's like, kind of, he's scared at this point. So, I mean, that part, that's where he got involved is when he saw Jack Murray's head. The, the the murders that were before that, he didn't know about. Je uh, so he, Carol Bundy. Mm -hmm. So all of these earlier murders that he was supposed to have taken place, in his statement is, is that he didn't know about those. No. So the ones that the jury found that he was guilty for, he's now stating, Douglas Clark is stating that he didn't. And he didn't know this, he was, he was not involved in any of those, right? That's been his story since the beginning. Even when you look at the the the, the testimony in court, he's trying to, to make the case that it was Jack and Carol, that it was not him and Carol. So the, the thing is this, people, Louis Farr, I should say, Louis Farr, the one that wrote this book about the Sunset Strip Killers, it's, it's just an absolute piece of fiction. But, you know, she's one that really pushes this narrative. Um, she was also on Larry King in the 90s against Doug, but talk to Larry King about how she had been talking to his defense attorney. Like, when is it okay for the defense attorney to be talking to the one person that's writing the book that describes how, what a, a, a guilty son of a bitch you are when it's, it was 
when you read the book, it's it's not it's not fact. If you know, it's just not. If you look at any of the test the the court documents, it's not fact. But so, I'm sorry. Ask me a question so I don't I don't go all over the place. Does he ever talk about his background? His father was an in intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. How did Clark get into this? If he thinks that he's innocent, or he's stating to you and sharing that on the podcast that he is mm -hmm. not involved in any of this, how did he get within that orbit that? the police and the jury would find him guilty of these crimes. So it goes back to kind of what I was talking about, how Doug comes off, comes across to, to people, right? One of the things that that is, and I, I have to say, I, I really like Doug. He's always friendly and kind to me. He's not creepy or anything like that. But one thing about Doug is that there is, and I'm not speaking as a therapist when I say this at all, because I can't diagnose the guy, but there's something about some sex addiction with him. He's definitely got some compulsions when it comes to sex. I mean, he, the guy loves to engage with sex workers of all kinds. You know, when he was growing up, he lived all over the world um, with his dad. His dad eventually, you know, went from the, the, the Navy into the CIA. Doug goes from living in, in India and Sweden. He goes to a military school in Indiana and then directly up to Alaska. And he's working as, uh, you know, intercepting messages. Then after that, he comes down to Los Angeles because he wants to, as cheesy as it might sound, he just wants to party. It's like that's kind of how he comes across. He didn't even want to have his own his own place. He worked at the Jurgens factory on the boiler. He enjoyed the company of lots of different people. He makes there's no dispute about that. Doug just wanted to enjoy lots of women's company and really not be tied down with anything else. Um, and there was a couple of women that he loved. Uh, he met Carol in December in 1979, I think. So this whole thing between him and Carol is very short. If you think about the time that they met in December to what, when they go to jail, August, I mean, it's a short thing. Um, Carol was ticked off because she had this affair with, with Jack Murray. She literally gave his wife $18,000 to try to like say, I'll give you this money if you just give me your husband. I mean, just really weird stuff. But so that the night of the little Nashville, Jack and Carol are together and Jack has another one of his girlfriends because, you know, they're kind of all these swinging, swinging uh, people. And she finds Doug that night. And from then she has Doug stay with her. So Doug stays with her kind of off and on. Um, one of the things, this is a huge piece of information that's important. Um, is through the time that Doug was staying with Carol, Carol started to groom a young girl by the name of Shannon, Shannon O, who was 11 years old. She lived in the apartment complex with them. And Carol um, has a history herself of abuse, working as a sex worker herself. She was really into like the, in the late 60s, the Venice, California scene. She was in, she helped uh, her boyfriend, Dick Geist, make this like fanzine called Psychotic. So she was very into like this, you know, kind of, counterculture sort of thing so but and that's aside the point not just because not it, people that are in counterculture are not also pedophiles i want to be clear when i say that because the thing i'm going to say next has nothing to do with counterculture but she was grooming this young lady shannon and she would get guys to get into compromising situations with shannon and take pictures and doug and this is the one thing that doug's I think helps him to stay in, in jail and not feel bad about it. Is he's, he does feel guilty because he had inappropriate interactions with Shannon and he can try to soften it up by saying they didn't have sex and that's fine and good. But the, the fact is, is that she was 11 years old. He was an adult man and there was pictures of them fondling each other, things like that. Right. So Carol uses this as a huge piece of leverage. She tried to get pictures of Jack 
with Shannon and, and he wouldn't fall for it. But that was something that kept uh, Doug, I think, just, okay, Carol, I'll do whatever you say. I'll do whatever you say because he didn't want those pictures to get out. So, I mean, that's a piece of leverage over, over Doug. And I cannot, I mean, obviously, I'm, it's terrible. It doesn't matter what the young lady looked like, how she was being treated, if she was being trafficked by anybody, he still did it. And that's that he is guilty of that. So he denies being involved in all of these uh, things, these the murders, the least four uh, younger kind of runaways, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It was Gina Morano, Cynthia Chandler, Karen mm -hmm. Jones, and Exie Wilson. Mm -hmm. He says that he's not involved. He was all, he was taking the blame. And in court, I think that was his argument is that he wasn't involved in anything. It was Bundy who did everything, yeah. right? Isn't that, isn't that his main argument? But the jury yes. didn't buy it. Why do you think the jury didn't buy it back in 1980? Well, there's a whole lot of things that can happen with juries. I mean, I, I the jury was exposed to things that, like, say, for instance, there was a person who... Cheryl Alderman, Alderman, I think is her name, Anderson. She said that Doug tried to, to stab her. Well, she was, again, not saying anything ugly about people that misuse substances, but she was in jail detoxing off of opiates and she had been stabbed by somebody. So they, they were like, they hypnotized her and then they're like, who, who did it? Was it Doug? They're kind of leading. So then she, she says this to the jury, they throw it out, but the jury's already heard it. I mean, even if they throw out testimony, it doesn't change when human beings hear something, whether it's thrown out or not, it's in your psyche. There's that. Um, there was another woman, uh, Doreen, I think, who who said that he was very scary. She had to leave Los Angeles, yada, yada, yada. She had psychic visions of him in black leather on a motorcycle. That is not a reason to be scared of somebody. Say it's a psychic vision, but I don't know if the jury got a chance to really hear all the evidence. I think that they there was a lot of optics happening. I think that Carol really did a great job of portraying herself as this um, victim that was just led astray by by Doug Clark. And again, Doug Clark did not, he tries to get it out there as fast as he can. And he, he, he is not always effective in his communication, you know, so he would throw uh, derogatory terms at the judge. He would say things that sounded, you know, calling people jackass or whatever. So that's not playing well for him either. And he so, was kind of a well-educated person does do you mm -hmm. ever talk to him about kind of the arc of his career like he was schooled in i think in switzerland he was one of those mm -hmm. types who had access to uh quality private schools like yeah. how he's he's in a, do you take him to be a kind of like the higher intelligence and well-spoken i don't i, I don't mean, listen to no he's i mean i i think that he's he's actually he does come across as smart. He, he, you know, I'll be honest. And I don't, my, I don't know what my husband would say, but the, my, my take on him is, you know, he, he was raised in like these, in a different culture, like on islands and stuff with other military kids. So, and then, then, and he does, he's got this, this great education. I'll talk about when he was in India and sort of being introduced to sex work at, at an earlier age. So he has all these like very worldly sort of experiences, but when it comes to life on the street, I don't know if, if, and no offense to Doug, again, I don't know if he really was, was clocking things the way another person might. I think that he was book smart, but I think when it came to Carol, I don't think he saw it coming, to be quite honest with you. I don't think he realized what he was getting himself into. 
If that does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. He's I mean, a, I'm just he's a smart, I mean, well read guy. Right. So you, yeah. So you think that he's had this 40 years in San Quentin unjustly. So he's kind of part of this kind of new movement where convicted people are trying to, you know, find a way to reassess their cases through kind of public, you know, public uh, means, maybe innocence project, stuff like that. Has he ever had any contact with the innocence project? There's been some contact. Um, and, and throughout the years, there's been contact with, with different lawyers, you know, and he's tried to have his case heard more, you know, on, on multiple occasions. So it's not, and I'll tell you this, it's not changed. His story is not changed at all. I mean, he writes, he can't write as well now because he doesn't have a typewriter and his handwriting is, is pretty um, difficult to read and difficult for him to write, but he's written a lot of things himself to try to get out. He's written a lot of things for the, the San Quentin newspaper articles. And so, I mean, he just, we have, we have just files and files of things that he sent to us, but it's not like he's changed any of his tactics to be, you know, to, to, to get out. It's always the same story. Right. And so when you're talking to him, you've included these personal uh, conversations into, I think you're at what, 10 parts now on this podcast, Dead Man Talking. Can you kind of talk about what he, what he talks about when you're, and what you've included into your podcast? So my husband and Doug talk a lot about the case and just all the strange occurrences and the, the way that things just don't line up or, you know, how he maybe didn't get, he didn't get a fair shake at things. When I, when I talk to Doug, um, I like to talk to Doug about other things because I'm interested in him. I really want to understand, you know, this guy and, and I want to understand how his relationship with Carol, that's one of the things that's really interesting to me. I, I'm very interested in, in, in his uh, perception of things, but he, I think one thing that's happened over the past 40 years is he's almost gotten a little bit more kind of dug in to, you know, some of his beliefs not, and not in a bad, again, it's the same story he's always, he's always said, but he has this narrative about how Carol sort of copycatted the Ted Bundy murders. And he spent a lot of time trying to, to, to shine light on that. I mean, I think that Carol just did that to, to mess with his head really. But I mean, he, the guy is just so much energy there to, because it keeps him alive, you know, thinking about like, how can my name get cleared? I don't even, to be quite honest, I don't know if at this point he wants to get out of prison. I, I don't know. It, it seems like he's, God, he just gets so excited when it comes to salsa day. You know, it's been such a long time that he's been incarcerated. I don't, his main goal is not to come out of prison. He wants to clear his name. That's his motivation. So that's kind of how he what what he's done to, to reach out to different attorneys and places like the Innocence Project. But that's a that takes you know, you got There has to be like a compelling case or a likable character. And I think that that's what Doug has missed over the years is being that likable character, which sounds terrible when we think about justice. But that's what a lot of people um, gravitate to, you know, is the underdog or this guy seems like, you know, I, I feel for him. I've got compassion for him. God, even Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, people, you know, would, I remember when I was a, a young person in the Ted Bundy case, I had a teacher at school and he's just so handsome. You just don't hear those kind of things about Doug Clark because of how he presents. Right. So he, um, and uh, the girl, what, what's her name? Bob Bundy passed Car away Carol in 2003. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she's mm -hmm. already gone. So she yeah. can't really kind of defend her statements um and murray's dead so i just I, I don't know what what kind of evidence or what would he show to 
to clear his name? What, what can he well, say to do it? So some of the things like say, for instance, that the, that's why getting DNA, a DNA test is really important. Taking another look at like the, the blood and the thing, the semen that was supposed to be in, you know, in one of the cadavers, you know, those kinds of things. To, to see what was there because does it match up with Doug or not to talk about the, the, you know, the, the timeline of events in a, in a real way, not just in a kind of in Carol's way, in Carol's words. But, and if you listen to the Carol tape that we put up, she talks about the way she describes the case, the, the events, it just doesn't make any sense. She flip flops back and forth. You know, there was, I'm, I'm going to say this, there was some leading by the police even uh, Detective Stallcup, Detective Stallcup, we have it's in writing that he kind of fudged a little bit on some of the um, the uh, that the, he interviewed uh, uh, one of the Comers, Marette, Marnette Comer's sister, and he acknowledges, you know, that there were some things that he took some liberties with. I think that there was liberties taken in a lot of ways to just get this case gone, go, you know, let's just wrap it up. This makes more sense. Um, like Carol Bundy. She okay, so there was I don't know how many of the Raven Raven guns were sold in that one area in Van Nuys. I think five. Two of them were purchased by by Carol Bundy. Um, they didn't look into her because at that point, Judge Ito, his wife Margaret, oh my God, Peggy York. Peggy York was one of the cops that was on that, and she said women don't kill people. Women don't do that. Don't don't even bother. So we've got the first time that Carol Bundy's pushed away as a suspect, right when they they are looking at the guns. Then Exy Wilson, her head was placed in this ornate sort of wooden box. They find the store on Melrose, I think, where it was where it was sold. And what do you know? The store clerk describes Carol Bundy. She bought the box. They still don't look into her. They did, however, go to Mexico to meet the people that manufactured the box, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, those those resources are going to that. Why aren't they going to get the witnesses in, in other respects? They went all the way to, to was it Alabama or uh, Louisiana to go meet with Exie Wilson's family, but they're not going to, you know, to other places nearby. It's just, it's a very strange way that they, where they put the resources in the case. So I guess what I'm saying is they, I think that they took some liberties. Have you looked through the actual uh, trial uh, documents or are they available to the public? I have some of them. I have some of the, the documents, um, and I, like I said, I'm, I'm uploading them as, as, as I get them. Um, we are, we're continuing to get things, though, because in getting things from Doug in, in jail or getting them from you know, his lawyer or whatever, it takes a while. But, I mean, he sends us a lot of things. We're actually going to go out to Los Angeles pretty soon and, and hopefully pick up some more. But, yeah, it's, we're getting them piece by piece. So, yes. And, and there's some things in the documents it, that like asking for things like Jack Murray's history. Where is it? You know, they asked in 1990, Doug wanted to have a, a polygraph test administered. They set it up in San Quentin. Uh, we have the documents. I put those up too. the, the letter. The warden said, no, you can't do it after they got ticked off at Doug because I don't know what he said, but he it, apparently he made somebody mad and they're like, no, you can't, you're not going to have it. Well, why not? Why can't he have the, the polygraph? I mean, they had, they'd taken every precaution so that they could, you know, look through the device, whatever. So, but, so that wasn't done either. It's just a lot of things that just don't make sense. Hmm. And how has he adapted to 40 years of incarceration? Well, 
he's still alive. So I guess he's adapted well enough. I mean, he, uh, like I said, he'll, he'll tell us stories, you know, like sometimes when there's, if there's a special food of the day, he, you know, he gets just very thrilled. Um, you can hear, he tells my husband a lot of stories about, cause he was incarcerated with, um, a couple of other known serial killers. So he, he kind of, yeah, he's, he spent a lot of interesting time with, with other guys, but a lot Which of people ones? write him. Which ones? Offhand? Let's see. My husband is more the ser- serial killer guy. The trash bag killers. Kenneth Bianchi. He never talked to Kenneth Bianchi. He knew Angelo Bono before because they both, which is one of those weird connections. Oh my gosh. I can't think of the guy's name. I'm sorry, but he, the guy is now deceased. Um, but he's sending us stuff um, that the guy drew a bunch of things, but he was a serial killer in the seventies around the same time, because when he was in jail with all of these guys, they're all in jail at the same time with each other, late seventies, tons of serial killers. That's what yeah. initially kind of interested us. Yeah. Patrick Kearney, Patrick Kearney. Does that right? sound right? No, his name starts with an L. This is why but there was like a rash of killings mm-hmm. in Southern California. They were there was the highway killers. There were so many. I think it was all. It's not. Well. Yeah, he did not like William Bonin. I know that much. Um, there, there's been a the guy. Yeah, this a bunch of killers. Randy Kraft. Are, Randy Kraft. Randy Randy Kraft. I think he. I think yeah. He that's another one that he knew. Yeah. So there's. I've a, done a show on Kraft too with the author of a book. He probably had a oh. hundred. 100 victims. It's uh, astonishing. He's probably one of the lesser known serial uh-huh. killers out there. For some reason, he never got the kind of repute, I, ill repute that some of these other characters do, like Dahmer. But that's the thing. I mean, when, when we're talking about this, there's something to be said for the the way a person looks for that, that it draws them into like the, the collective psyche and people are interested or they start to sort of project their own, their own feelings or fears onto this person. Doug's never really gotten that. I think Doug, all that's been projected onto Doug is what a, what a son of a bitch that guy is. That's kind of what gets projected onto him. Hmm. I mean, the crimes, and, whoever committed those crimes, they were uh, heinous. I mean, uh, monstrous, really an abomination. So I mean, well, somebody can, thought it did it. You can see why they imputed that upon him. And that's another reason why this is important. I mean, even though the crimes are, are far in the past, you know, Carol's got two sons that are still, you know, they're in their early 50s, late 40s. There's the families of the victims that are out there. I mean, there's there's people that they deserve to know the truth. You know, Doug, most of his family, his siblings and everything are, are older like him. But, you know, Carol's the one that said it's fun to kill people. Carol's the one that bef- before this, she was a science fiction writer, like I said, with her boyfriend, Dick Geis, who was a pretty well-known science fiction writer and, and won some some different awards. She, I actually have uh, some of his journals where Carol has written Dick Geis letters saying things like, I've got an idea for a story. And she sort of pitches this thing that's going on with, with Doug and Jack. And then, you know, Richard Geis or Dick Geis is just like, leave me alone, leave me alone, Carol. I don't want to talk to you. And then she comes back again like, I think he's going to kill me. And, and Dick Geis is like, well, why don't you leave town? What's your problem? So that just a lot of inconsistencies about her, even her psychiatric report that I have. Um, and I put it up on Facebook. It, she lies in the psychiatric report, even about things like the amount of time she's been married. You know, it's just, it's just not, it's not a fair shake. It's not a fair representation of, of Doug. Or of Carol, because she was just painted to be this this victim, and she wasn't. 
she may have been painted as a victim, but she got convicted too. She got a life sentence. So I don't know. Because well, she, uh, she, she cut off Jack the juries head. didn't. Yeah, but the juries are, didn't. I'm, I'm assuming she had a jury trial, or did she just she, get uh, convicted? She just got convicted. She got convicted of the Jack Murray uh, murder because Doug wasn't there because the EMTs were at his house. She couldn't pin that on him because there was a, an alibi that she couldn't mess with. She went to the house with Jack Murray's head and the EMTs were there. If the EMTs hadn't have been there, she probably would have tried to, to, to pin it on him too. You know, so and when you behead a man, whatever the, the situation is, yeah, she, I think she got 52 years to life or something. And she died in, in prison. I think her parole was going to be 2012, but she died in 2003. So where can people listen to your podcast? I mean, I can put a link to it in the show notes and they mm -hmm. can they can make a decision for themselves. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not convinced. <laughs> hey, and that's fine. Like I said, you know, and I'm, this you've got to remember anybody that's listening. This is only one half of the team. I'm, I'm usually behind the scenes. My husband's the one that does you know, the, the, a lot of the talking, I'm the one that likes to sit back and like, just do the research and stuff. So, you know, if he was, I'm sure he'd be like, just biting his fingers when he, when he hears this thinking about all the things I didn't say, but listen, and it's on Spreaker, Spotify, Apple, wherever there's podcasts, you can find them. Listen to our podcast. If you think that we're way off base, please tell us. I mean, this is something that I think requires community involvement. This is the age of, of information. These are This is something that Doug could not have done 40, 30, 20 years ago because we just didn't have access to it. So, I mean, if, if somebody thinks that we're, you know, out of our minds, I certainly don't mind that feedback. Let us know what you think. I mean, point us in the right direction. You make a good point, though. This is really a new kind of phenomenon, internet phenomenon, communications phenomenon, where people are allowed or able to go back and retry review these cases there's all so many cases are being reviewed by celebrities mm -hmm. or just podcasts um you can go back to serial uh but there's hey. not too many in my opinion that really have found somebody who's really that innocent to be honest with you i, I almost well, whenever the public is going into it there's very few that they can find that are legitimately like uh, white as snow or something like. Even if some of these people who are getting out from the Innocence Project have other other issues with them, so there's you got to be have a very kind of uh, sober, judicious, objective view. Absolutely. Of these cases. Yeah. And I'm not saying that Doug is you know this innocent little angel. That is not what I'm saying because, like I said, he clearly was involved in something heinous with this underage girl, and that in that just that deserves jail time, right? But is he, is there enough evidence for this man to have been on death row for 40 years for these murders? Because any of us as American citizens, I hope that if something like this happened to me, somebody would be paying attention. You know, even if I'm not that interesting of a character on television, at least somebody stick, we're sticking up for each other. And if he's guilty, if there's DNA to suggest that that shows he's guilty, I, okay, that's fine. I, but Give him a fair shake at justice. Right. These are these are crimes that took place before the you know use of any DNA or any mm -hmm. that technology even was existence. Which you know you can leave. I'll leave it to the people to check it out. So, Don, yeah. thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. again your podcast and you've talked to this convicted serial killer. 
Douglas Clark is Dead Man Talking, and I'll put a link mm -hmm. to that in the show notes. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap it up? No, if anybody has questions, send them in our send them our way. We'll get Doug to answer them for you because that's the great part about having a, a conversation with him while we're doing this is that if there's a question, we can get him to answer it or at least be stumped by it. So feel free to, to give us whatever your questions are. Awesome. And so the link... Where's it? Could you have a social media link or a website link too? I can include if people want to ask you questions. Um, on on Facebook, I have a Dead Man Talking um, group page that I. It's pretty boring, but I use it just to put up the um, the documents and stuff that I'm getting. And and you know, I do this in my time after work and everything, so I'm putting things up. But you know, have patience with me. So because I'm this is all old stuff. We're scanning it and digitizing it and putting it up. All right, so I'll include that. So if people want to reach out to you. It's the Facebook page for this podcast series, Dead Man Talking, making people uh, reach out. I think that's how I reach out to you, actually. So thanks so yeah, much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you All so right, much. Take care. All right. Okay, take care. Bye. Stay there. Bye. Stay there.